How you doing, Caitlin? Okay, I have to say, right off the bat. Uh-huh. Oh, by the way, this is Poro Pals. We're talking about the Halloween party. I have to say, this book makes me feel so claustrophobic that I want to go and commit a crime. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. Like it does. I want to rebel against every adult ever. Yep. And I don't know if I would have survived the 60s. <laughs> no, I definitely would not have. And I just will say that if we have to cut this recording short because you hear sirens in the background and I just have to go, <laughs> just let I've just already committed a number of crimes over the last two days. So <laughs> they'll be really yeah. tame crimes though, like stealing gum. But still, we really need to stick it to the man. Oh, 100%. And not just the gum. <laughs> but okay, we're here. We're talking <sighs> about Halloween party. This is the debrief episode. Mm-hmm. So, listen to this only if you've read or listened to The Halloween Party or you don't care. Yes, there is a galvanized metal bucket full of spoilers ahead. <laughs> you have been warned. We're going to give away everything that happens. Yes. Before we started recording, I was like, I need to get this book out of my head. <laughs> and I haven't felt that way more about a book in a really long time. (laughs) I agree. Should we just get to it or? Well, I think we should just get to it. We're so glad everyone's here. Oh, we do want to say if you're new to this podcast in general and you want a little overview of what we're doing and how the podcast works and like what order should I listen to things, listen to episode one, which is the introduction. And it kind of gives the rules for how to, the rules, (laughs) <laughs> Just some guidelines, some gentle guidelines. <laughs> yeah, gentle guidelines. Sure, exactly. But also, your knot tying skills are getting a little better. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. I've been practicing. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Speaking of being tied to things. <laughs> wow. This book. I want to start off by saying this book has some merits. And remember, yes. in the last episode... A very nice person from The Independent said that this was the crime book of the 20th century. (laughs) And I just want to quickly say also, if possible, after we had recorded the pre-read episode and you read that review, (laughs) I was completely wide open to being wrong about this book. Yeah, like maybe I'll see it this time. Yep, I was like, this is the second time through, man. This is going to be it. I'm going to, and like you said, it has its merits, but it also is consistently frustrating. Oh, God, yes. And I think that's where I'm like, I want to commit a crime. I just felt so repressed by this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of it was the themes. Some of it was how it was written. And it just filled me with both angst and anxiety. Yeah. So let's just get to it. I think we start, we're going to start this episode the way we started the debrief for The Mysterious Affair at Styles, And that is by telling you right now what the major crime is and who did it. So if you still haven't read it yet and you don't want any spoilers, press stop right now because here we go. Three, two, one, the crime There's a bunch of people that get killed in this book in the past and the present. Yeah. But the main murder is of Joyce Reynolds, who is 
a girl at the age of 13 years old. She was drowned in an apple bobbing bucket during a Halloween party. Yes. (laughs) It's so cruel. (laughs) It's so unremittingly cruel. But okay, so the perpetrators are Michael Garfield, who is an artist of sorts, and then Rowena Drake, who is uh, kind of like one of the mainstays in the neighborhood, right? She is uh, definitely an establishment character, and they have committed a series of murders. So there you go. Okay, we start out in the a London suburb called Woodley Common. The house is called Apple Trees, which ties into the character that we first meet, who is someone named Ariadne Oliver. Is that how you pronounce that? Okay, so with all Poirot pronunciations, I listen to the audiobooks, and so they say Ariadne, but I also am very aware that sometimes the Brits will pronounce things different than we do, so... I'm going to go with Ariadne. I think Ariadne is fantastic. So we meet Ariadne Oliver, who is a fascinating character in the sense that she herself is a well-known mystery writer, which is just a great little (laughs) glimpse into maybe Agatha Christie creating a character for herself to be in these novels. It's fantastic. She is staying with her friend Judith Butler, and they're preparing for a party. It's a Halloween-themed party. It's a strange age range for a party. It's kids between the age of 10 and 17, which is kind of unheard of, I think, in the U.S. I feel like this chapter is – the first two chapters are my favorite because they feel so promising. They're funny, and the tone is light and clever, and there's just so much comedy, and then it stops. So, like, these two chapters are – so fun to read. Yeah, and Ariadne is a great character, like really, really funny, very forward, very confident. So I think something that's very important that happens in this chapter is right away, Ariadne, it's kind of great. She's talking out loud to no one in particular, which I love. <laughs> but she's talking aloud to no one in particular, and she's trying to figure out the difference between American Halloween traditions and Thanksgiving. I think this is for a British audience who may not be aware of these kind of fall traditions because they're not as big of a deal, clearly, and especially Thanksgiving. And so it's clever that she's setting it up, but also she's getting in the way. (laughs) Everybody's tripping over her. And as she's trying to be helpful, they're getting ready for bobbing for apples, which is a whole motif I think we need to get into. But she keeps just eating all the things that she's given to, like, put places. <laughs> right, right. We're meeting these characters. Judith Butler is a friend of hers. And then the woman who is running the party is Rowena Drake. She's very much in charge of what's happening. They're trying to decide what type of bucket would be best for bob- mm-hmm. bobbing for apples, which is great. And they end up with a galvanized metal bucket is what they decide the thing that's interesting about that is that I think that happens before Joyce says that she saw someone murdered. Yeah. So they had made the decision before Rowena Drake knew that she was going to kill Joyce, correct? Yeah. So that that's like a weird thing, though, to like have it in there. Oh, you're picking the best bucket for not only bobbing, but also to kill someone. <laughs> yeah. The choreography of this scene is so smart. And in this chapter, I was impressed 
because Agatha Christie gives us like Ariadne Oliver's being goofy. Then we get Rowena Drake and she brings up bobbing for apples. And she's talking about like, oh, water spills everywhere. And so basically we get Rowena talking about being wet from the bobbing for apples right away. And then who comes in right after that? Joyce. And it's all in the same paragraph. And they start talking about bobbing for apples. And so she hands us the plot on a platter. Literally, it was so satisfying to see her set it up that way. And it's so casual and nonchalant the way she does it, that on the first read, you can completely skip that. Oh, yeah, it completely went past me because I was caught up in the pace and how much I was enjoying the banter and and Ariadne. It, It was really amazing. Joyce then comes in. Joyce is the 13-year-old, and there's a bunch of kids kind of hanging around, and she notices Ariadne and starts to talk to her. She suggests something about having a murder at the party and making people solve it, like in one of her books. Mm -hmm. And that is... It's exactly what happens. Right, exactly. One other thing that we need to talk about right away with Ariadne Oliver. So maybe I can just kind of give a little background about her. Yes, please. Because uh, she's new to you, not new to me. (laughs) We're (laughs) friends. (laughs) She's one of my favorite characters in Poirot. And she comes in kind of later, maybe in the the last chunk of books. And she is this much needed comedic relief. I think she definitely stands in for Agatha Christie. And she's kind of allowed to make fun of herself and kind of insert herself into the books and kind of give her opinions because she's a famous author of murder mysteries. She's kind of an older woman, too. So she's dealing with fame and what that means to be famous and also dealing with the new generations that we were talking about in the previous episode with the change that's going on in the world in the 1960s. But she also is always, she has this motif where she's always eating apples. And actually, there's a description, but that kind of explains it for the reader. This is Poirot actually like thinking about Ariadne Oliver. He says, practically on every occasion that he'd met Mrs. Oliver, whether by appointment or by accident, a motif of apples seemed to be introduced almost immediately. She was either eating an apple or had been eating an apple, witness an apple core nestling on her broad chest, or was carrying a bag of apples. But today, there was no apple in evidence at all. <laughs> the fact that the murder involves apples, part of me gets really frustrated or just gets suspicious about this book because I'm like, is this book a big prank on Ariadne Oliver? Like, of course, all the things happen. This is real. But it seems written just to punish Ariadne Oliver. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, later on, I think in like the next chapter, the chapter after that, she says that she doesn't she hates apples. now, And she hates water. Those are two tough things to hate. It seems like it's all about her. A little bit, which is interesting. It's almost (laughs) like Agatha Christie conceived of this book by like, how can I make a nightmare for Ariadne Oliver? Right. (laughs) And I think she does. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't know that because I, this is my first encounter with her. And I was kind of like, what's up with the apples thing? But that makes sense. But then Joyce all of a sudden kind of starts to push things further as there are more kids around and maybe attention is being drawn from her. She says she's seen a murder once. 
And then she says, she didn't know it was a murder when I saw it. Something somebody said only about a month or two ago suddenly made me think, of course, that was a murder I saw. So Joyce has just said to a bunch of people who have overheard it that she has seen a murder. And the rest of that scene is very much like people shooting her down and being like, of course you didn't. Don't be silly. You're this type of person. And then we get into... <laughs> then we get into another situation where the kids want to practice bobbing for apples and it's creating such a mess because there's so much water that Rowena pulls the plug on it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and which is a huge hint because later on we find out that we can get the clue that she's the murderer from water. Exactly. Okay. So two things. One, I think also coming back to Ariadne, <laughs> she says of apples that they're her besetting sin. <laughs> That's awesome. Like the theme of sin and Eden and the devil comes up a lot kind of as we get further into the book. I think this kind of leads into our hashtag justice for Joyce, but it seems like she's being punished for being so boastful. Yes. And like she literally is drowning in all these like sinful fruits. And also, just before we get to Justice for Joyce, which you thought of, by the way, hashtag Justice for Joyce, which is amazing. <laughs> I think our brains mind melded there. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely. But also, they mind melded here because we have similar notes here where there's a situ- situation where Ariadne is trying to get to another room as the setup still is happening. And there's a couple of teenagers making out. Yeah. She tries to get by them and they don't really move. And then she kind of has to, you know, say, I I want to get by or whatever. And then as she passes them, we hear her thoughts about those two kids and how about they don't respect people and how rude they are. But then as she passes, those two kids say the exact same thing about her. I kind of at this early point in the book, I was like, okay, we've got generational equivocation here. This is fantastic. It's going to work out. And then it all falls apart. It made me wonder why, why you thought that it didn't stay that way throughout the book. I feel like we were teased with these two chapters that we're going to get this very clever book that's maybe, and I guess we do end up, I think we do kind of end up siding on the side of teens a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought it was going to be a bit more edgy because Ariadne's thinking this, they aren't considerate. And then she's like, oh yeah, I heard all these generations say this before me. And then the kids say it. And so- it seems like Agatha Christie's kind of taking the kid's side a little bit, where mm-hmm. she's like, no matter who we are, every generation is going to have this tension. And let me kind of show you a window into even what the teenagers are thinking. So justice for Joyce, this is one of the most unfortunate things about this book, is how virtually everyone, including our heroic detective, talks about Joyce. Now, yes. keeping in mind that this is this is chapter one, and these Justice for Joyce quotes are pre-Joyce being found dead. Mm-hmm. So this is the way they're talking about Joyce. The first thing we hear about Joyce is that she's a sturdy 13-year-old, which is not a great adjective to describe a young woman, I don't mm-hmm. think. I think it's like kind of doing that thing that happened in Styles, where she's using words that would be used to describe the male gender to describe a woman or a young woman in a derogatory way. Yeah. Also, then Ariadne says, Joyce was boastful and asked questions. 
I don't like Joyce much. <laughs> and it's like, okay, she's a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. But that's great. Okay. And we understand there's a reason why this is happening. I would just say that as you listen to this episode, if you've read the book, do the readers think that it paid off? All of the reasons that Joyce had to be assailed verbally <laughs> beyond being killed, did it really pay off in the end? Was it really that necessary? Yeah. So that's the first two Justice for Joyce's. There will be many, many more. Maybe I don't spend enough time around tweens, but I don't ever think such judgmental things. <laughs> no. You're still developing. You're still becoming a human. Like, right. you're, it's your job to be annoying sometimes or contrary or, like, exaggerate. And that's kind of, like, the joy of being that age. It seems like they're expected to be, especially the girls, are expected to be these little adults. Exactly. One of the things that we hear about Joyce as it goes on is how much she's just this pathological liar. You could also say that she's like imaginative and inquisitive. And loves to tell stories. And loves to tell stories. And loves to describe things. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. We definitely are siding, I think, very much on wanting to give Joyce some some room to be herself. Pro-Joyce and later pro-Miranda, definitely anti-Leopold. That's where I am. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, again, we'll we'll see when we get to Leopold. So, okay. Anyways, so we've kind yeah. of set this up. I think that's mostly chapter one. And like chapter two moves along in that same pace, that same speed. Everything is chaotic. And she does a really good job making the room feel really full of people. And I think actually at one point, Ariadne Oliver gets... She gets really tired and has to sit down. Mm-hmm. And she even at one point is like, I don't even know if I want to go to this party. This seems really stupid. But we get the events of the party itself. I'll kind of go through all the different games because I think it is kind of important to know the sequence of events. But before I do that, there are some really funny kids these days moments. I think maybe we haven't talked about it that much in this episode, but that is the thing that I think is dragging you and me down, Chad, and probably the other readers is the kids these days attitude and how it keeps coming up and it's so repetitive. And you had mentioned that often the critique of this book is that people don't think it was edited. And I can certainly see that. And it feels as if these two chapters did have another set of eyes on them or there was a bit more finessing and shaping of them. Yeah, they didn't feel like the rough draft they felt like they had gone through the process. But yeah, yeah, whereas some other parts of the book do not. Even when they're lamenting teens, it's very funny. And this is where I think Ariadne Oliver as Agatha Christie is so great because she has, she's, she's very into observational comedy. She says, preparations for a children's party usually give far more trouble to the organizers than an entertainment devised for those of adult years. So she's just like, kids' parties are so much work. They're kind of stupid. The kids are kids. They don't even care about all the details. And then Judith is talking about like, well, maybe teenage parties, you know, teenagers are this new thing. She's like, they're the easiest. They just throw all the adults out and they say they'll do it themselves. But then Ariadne Oliver is like, well, are they successful? Do they actually do things themselves? And Judith gives this great monologue that goes to some really surprising places. And she says it kind of wearily. That's how I imagine it. 
She says they forget to order some of the things and they order a lot of other things that nobody likes, having turfed us out. Then they say there were things we ought to have provided for them to find. They break a lot of glasses and other things. And there's always somebody undesirable who brings an undesirable friend. You know, the sort of thing. Peculiar drugs. And what do they call it? Flower pot, purple hemp, or LSD? <laughs> Which I have always thought just meant money, but apparently it doesn't. <laughs> She's just describing this concept of kids throwing house parties. And she is kind of curious. And then Ariadne Oliver replies, it all sounds very depressing. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's just like such a wonderful light moment of comedy before things get really dark. Yes. And in direct contrast to some of the God dang it, these teenagers stuff that, that happens later, which is really like you said, drags it down. That's That was just hilarious. Yeah. yeah. We know that Agatha Christie is capable of this. And so I think as it goes on, that sense of anxiety is also like, what happened? This could mm-hmm. be so much better. Like, I do want to take this and edit it. I think this could almost be a great novella. I don't even know if it needs to be 100 pages. It could have been a short story. It would work so well as that. If you cut all of that, then all of the themes that we're going to get later on, because actually something I did notice with the reread, is how much she does work really hard to give it this autumnal atmosphere. Mm -hmm. She's describing the landscape. I kind of noticed, too, that for a while I was like, oh, it's not really Halloween-y. You know, it's just this Halloween party at the beginning, and then we kind of drop that. And we really don't. Like, she's she takes us to, like, an oracle and a witch's house. And she really relies on folklore imagery and, like, kind of pagan imagery which makes sense because that's where Halloween came from. That's where its origins came from. Oh, if we could only get that plus the actual plot, this would be such a good book. And again, I don't I don't want us to get repetitive through that too. So. Oh yeah, I will just quickly let everyone know who's listening right now that once we get to those chapters, it's going to go pretty quick. Yeah, I think we're slowing down for these because this is where a lot of the really important stuff happens. Something else that I noticed that was kind of cool is you know how in styles and actually like a lot of the other books, the people that Poirot compliments as being really smart are the people you want to pay attention to. You know, he's like, he's a man of method. Ooh, this person is schemy enough to like put together this convoluted murder. And in this one, it's the people who are really good planners. Because we have Rowena, she's really, really organized. Then Poirot is really organized. He like plans his little itinerary. And then we get Michael, who's able to see this garden into the future. All the planners are the ones that are really kind of the hero and the nemeses. So anyways, let's take you all through the party. I do want to go to this party. This party sounds really fun. (laughs) Yeah, I, I could see myself chaperoning this party. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The games seem really cool. Okay, so let's get started. First of all, there's a a witch's broom decorating competition. (laughs) It's great because all the brooms are really horribly decorated. (laughs) And so this game is there so that the kids who aren't going to get prizes in any of the other games will get a prize. (laughs) Which is so thoughtful. That's wonderful. Yes. Yes. And then we get the flower cake game. And this one also, I'm like, I'm very curious. I kind of want to try to play this at some point in my life you take a container that's like the size of a traditional cake you pack it down really hard with flour oh and then you turn it over and kind of take the container off so that the flour holds its shape then you put a coin in the middle and the kids 
are given a knife. The kids are given a lot of dangerous <laughs> items at this party. Uh-huh. I think she kind of throws in some things too to be like suspense, shifting your suspicions. And so we have this knife. Maybe it will come into play, but it doesn't. The kids take turns cutting the flower tower into slices. And if you knock the coin off, you're eliminated. It gets put back on. So the last kid standing wins the coin. Great game. Yeah, it's like kitchen pantry Jenga. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, and it's so simple. This game also sounds fun. They have a dance party, and each time the lights go out, you have to switch partners. (laughs) That's amazing. That sounds so fun. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of married couples did that in the 70s also. (laughs) Yeah, I went some interesting places the years went on. Then we get the infamous bobbing for apples. Then we get the mirror game, which is so underutilized as a part of the plot. Like, I really wanted the murder to have something to do with the mirror game. It's so set up for it. As you had said in the pre-read, it comes from these origins of these almost like folklore games that kids would do to scare themselves. So you hold up a mirror and the girls are going to see their future husband in a mirror, but also a photograph floats down. Help me through this. Yeah. So to my knowledge, what it is, is they hold the mirror up and then they look into the mirror and it shows them what their future husband is going to look like. Does something else come down that could show them never getting married or potentially dying? You had said that it's origins. You may find out if you're going to die, but we don't have it in this one. Right. I think that's correct. And it is totally underutilized because it's a very well-written scene. Yeah. And Nicholas and Desmond, these teen boys... They keep this book so vibrant, and I feel Mm -hmm. like they are the gems that come out of this book because I just feel so much affection towards them (laughs) because they're such good sports. They're helping put together this entire party, it sounds like. And then as this game is going on, they're like putting on all these different disguises and the girls are just loving it. It's just a very generous use of their time Yeah, to like give these tween girls, this fun, magical experience. I just found it very sweet. Even though there's a lot of weird gender heteronormative stuff going on about what a girl's future is going to be. During this game, though, we get another really interesting exchange, actually, between Ariadne Oliver and Rowena Drake, who we know was a murderer. And Ariadne's like, girls are very silly nowadays. And Rowena says, don't you think they always were? And so even though it's condescending, it's again, whenever an adult is like kids these days, there's someone who comes in and like cuts that with some kind of comeback that questions that assumption. Yes. So the kids... They go in, they eat party foods, then Snapdragon happens. Mm -hmm. And as you explained in the previous episode, Snapdragon is a fun game where kids stick their hand into fire. And my favorite example of how kids love this game, because I think as a kid, this game is amazing, but as an adult, this sounds terrifying. And this little piece of dialogue kind of explains to me the fun that the kids are having. A kid says, ow, I'm burned. Isn't it lovely? (laughs) (laughs) It's that excitement where you're like, this is really painful. Wow. Then everyone gets prizes. And it's interesting because even though there's a sense of dread, we don't get the death yet. Everyone gets prizes and they go home. And 
the adults start to clean up and that's where the chapter ends. And then we kind of get this total shift in chapter three. Yeah. We uh, we get introduced to Hercule Poirot in this book. We're at his flat in London. He's bored. He seems tired. So maybe it's been a while since he solved the case. Maybe he's just kind of, you know, doing the equivalent of like playing video games or something. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's like, Ugh. you have the feeling here that he's old and it's intentional. Which I think is different than later on in the book where he seems potentially old just because we want to get to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. Ariadne calls and she is uh, distraught. <laughs> she invites herself over and they have the, the, a lovely exchange where you get a feeling for their past relationships and how much they admire each other and how close they are as friends. Ariadne like comes in and she's she's covered in rain. She's like really wet and she just immediately starts going like off yeah. on this tangent. And she's like, I never thought about water before. It's a terrible thing to think of. I hate water. And it's just like, whoa, what is happening? And she's clearly upset. It takes her a little while to get the story out. And she eventually shares that there was a murder committed, probably during the playing of Snapdragon. She's managed to put that much together, which is pretty impressive. She reveals that Joyce was the victim. We learn that she was killed in the bobbing for apples in a galvanized bucket. And we get the crime scene. And then Ariadne says, I hate apples. I never want to see an apple again. Which is, as you said before, makes it seem like this whole book is kind of a prank on Ariadne. If we look at it from the perspective of Ariadne, it's very funny. But then we look at it like you can kind of shift how you're looking at the book and you're like, oh, this is really dark. The death of this child and then all the weird child adult relationships that unfold. But if you look at it from Ariadne's perspective, it's kind of a romp, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but this book is so interesting because it's in third person omniscient. So we're getting Poirot's thoughts. We're getting Ariadne Oliver's thoughts. We're getting random lawyer's thoughts. So it's interesting that we get like inside their head. And part of me doesn't like being in Poirot's head because I kind of like the allure of not knowing what he's thinking. And the whole thing is trying to figure it out. I think that I would appreciate that narrative perspective more if it were a short story. If this had been condensed into its most potent form yeah. with like the comedy and the wittiness, but also the tragic nature of the crime. And uh, yeah, it does. It actually becomes almost wearisome yeah. <laughs> to, to be this close to his thought mm -hmm. process yeah. th throughout the thing without the foil of Hastings. Exactly. Yeah. But one thing I do like is that Poirot describes how, why he loves Ariadne Oliver so much. And he says, it's a pity she's so scatty, and yet she has an originality of mind. And so I think I'd said this in the previous episode, but the great thing about Ariadne, she's like the opposite of Poirot. He's like order and method, right? He like needs that. And she's all over the place, but they both help each other solve these mysteries. Right. And she's almost like a perfect partner in, I don't want to say partner in crime, but like partner in solving crime for him. And so they both are really intelligent, but they're coming at it from like completely polar opposite sides of a spectrum. Yeah. So the justice for Joyce that's in this chapter is when uh, Ariadne is, is discussing what happened at the party with Perot. She mentions that uh, when no one could find Joyce, that Joyce's mother referred to her as thoughtless, which is just such a strange thing to to, I don't know. That seems like a weird way to be like, oh, you're, we can't find your daughter. Oh, she's so thoughtless. She probably just left, which mm -hmm. is it, it, just kind of, I don't know, maybe not 
incredibly positive way to parent. Exactly. And that that onus on the kid for something bad happening to them, that's really when this starts to pick up and becomes a reoccurring theme. Yes. I was surprised in this book, Poirot drinks for the first time. You know, usually he like prefers like non-alcoholic, like he's like, I want a hot chocolate or something. But I think I clocked him drinking brandy and then a shandy. What, yes. I was like, whoa, okay, Poro. I looked up a shandy to see if there was a non-alcoholic version, and it didn't seem like no. it. So I was very surprised by that. But Ariadne Oliver is part of her character is that she doesn't drink, and she's very proud of it. But she's so upset that Poirot gives her a cognac, and she just, like, chugs it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she's like, oh, I feel better. They're still in Poirot's living room. And I think this is where the pace becomes glacial. And I, again, I imagine it, like... It's cold outside and there's like a warm fire or something and you just want to fall asleep. And that's how I feel. It's probably how Ariadne felt after she had the cognac. (laughs) Exactly. So we kind of get a little bit more about why Ariadne thinks that this is a mystery for Poirot. And it's because she thinks Joyce was killed due to the fact that she claimed she saw a murder. And then here's where we start to kind of get... Agatha Christie processing the true crime news of the day through this book. Crime is on the rise all over Europe and in the U.S. as well in unprecedented numbers. So, you know, it makes sense that she would be concerned about this. But Poirot's like, well, kids die all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's like, why do you want me to care about this? And so then she says, well, I think this is more complicated than it seems on the surface. It's interesting because like every person that Poirot is going to encounter now forward is going to say that the murder was committed by someone who didn't have a motive, but who was mentally unstable. Mm-hmm. I think I'll explain, I'll like quote it this once and then we'll just say, just expect that, that that's going to be a pattern. And so in a way, because it was a crime with a motive, I do wonder if the commentary we're supposed to be getting from this is that too much is blamed on poor mental health or if it's more careless than that. And I don't really know. Yeah, that is a great question, which because like knowing that it's Michael and Rowena, those are both older people. They're definitely not 16 or 17 year old kids and they're definitely not mentally disturbed people who came off the street. Yeah. They're accepted members of this enclave of folks. I think it's interesting that you say too, that like not only were these like competent adults that committed these crimes, but they were like exceptional adults in this community. She was running all the social events and he's this like master landscape artist. It does kind of call into question like who who's really to blame. But I will read this quote to give you an idea of the things the adults will say. And I do think it's interesting because, you know, we talked about the fact that like a lot of psychiatric facilities were closing at the time. And certainly this gets brought up over and over and over again. Ariadne says, children do queer things sometimes. I mean, there are queer children about. (laughs) It's just like, again, it's like kids wandering around committing crimes. Children who, well, once I suppose they would have been in mental homes and things, 
but they get sent home and now tell them to lead ordinary lives or something, and they go on to do something like this. So these kids who should be locked up are just pretending to be normal citizens. And that's pretty much what every adult says. But Poirot is also to blame here because he repeats over and over and over again that the personality of the victim is the cause of many a murder, which I think is also a hashtag justice for Joyce moment because oh, like it takes away all the blame on the person who decided to kill someone. That's a big choice. <laughs> He's talking about her like she's an adult. Yeah. And, and it's, which is bananas. I think we can travel to Woodley Common. So here's uh, a period of time in the book called Chapter 5, where uh, Perot meets someone named Superintendent Spence, who I don't know if he's from earlier books. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess so, yeah. So he's been in four or five earlier books. They have a relationship. They're both older now, obviously. Uh, Spence shows, shows some signs of aging, but Poro is miraculously the same. They have a common bond, uh, which is that they all, they just think that Spence was a fantastic police officer <laughs> and a very upstanding guy. The conversation is definitely peppered with misogyny. To say the least, Perot refers to women as obstructions to justice during cases. (laughs) He's like the wives and the girls and the rest of it, like, get in the way. Yeah, they're covering for these bad men. Justice for Joyce, Spence describes Joyce as a lump of a girl at 13. It just gets more cruel. (laughs) Like, what is that? Like, she just died. (laughs) Yeah, so, and then I just also want to toss this thing out here, too. But at the beginning of this scene... Superintendent Spence makes it clear to Perot that he doesn't do this killing stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. He doesn't solve these crimes, but he knows an inordinate amount about the party and the <laughs> yeah. crime for someone to say that. I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just necessary for the plot, but it does read as a bit of a like, what? At the beginning, you were like, I don't know anything. And now you're telling me exactly what you know about all the people in town <laughs> yeah. who may have committed yeah. this and also how much you hate women and children. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering just about why Spence is in there to begin with. And I really think the only purpose he serves is to give Poirot street cred in Woodley Common. And then when he needs it, connect him to the police to start searching for bodies. I think that's it. But we visit him a lot and we have a lot of meals with him. To get to that point. (laughs) We have a lot of, and a lot of slow paced meals. A lot of. (laughs) We're reminiscing. You can almost hear the chewing and the sighing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the one part about this chapter that I love is that we learn that Poirot admits to dyeing his hair and that's how he stays young. So it's like beauty tip time with Poirot. (laughs) He's like, tell me who the nasty people are in town. So he's going to Spence to just kind of get a feel for the situation. And Spence says, ask my sister because she's lived here longer. Yes. And this is really the start of what you named, and I love so much, Poirot goes trick-or-treating. Now we're getting to this place where he's just going door to door and he's talking to people. And so we'll kind of take you through at least what we think is important from the people he talks to. He goes to the murder scene with Ariadne Oliver. And again, we get apples just keep coming back. 
really thought Poirot, one didn't seem to be able to get away from apples. Nothing could be more agreeable than a juicy English apple. Yet here were apples mixed up with broomsticks, witches, and old-fashioned folklore, and a murdered child. <laughs> so we're going to think a lot about apples. Rowena Drake repeats the entire party. Basically, Poirot is kind of feeling out Rowena Drake. And I think even here, he's probably starting to get suspicious. Rowena is really upset, but she seems to be upset because this happened at her party. <laughs> right. And, like, it somehow reflects poorly on her ability to, like, have a party. She does say something kind of interesting here where it has this double meaning. She says, everything was entirely under control. All the arrangements were made. Everything was going perfectly, all according to plan. And we know that this was her plan with Michael to buy an island in Greece, which we'll get to more later. You could preface that with the reason I killed Joyce was everything was entirely under control. All the arrangements were made. Everything was going perfectly, all according to plan. Exactly. He starts asking her about Joyce and she gets uncomfortable. She's one of the first people that says really nice things about Joyce at first. And only under prodding does she admit that she doesn't really like her. And I love something that Poirot said. Because she was like, well, kids, how can you not like kids? And Poirot says, some children I consider are most unattractive. (laughs) But the only other interesting part that really happens is that, like, we get we get these moments where it's like Poirot meets the modern world. I think some of the interesting stuff about this book, too, is just like Poirot is now a fish out of water. And we're also seeing Poirot meet all these modern things. So he gives Ariadne Oliver like, this is the itinerary that I'm going to do. This is everybody I'm going to visit and talk to. And Ariadne Oliver says, you're acting like a computer. You're programming yourself. You're feeding all these things into yourself all day. And then you're going to see what comes out. And Poirot's like, I play the part of the computer. (laughs) So it's just interesting (laughs) to hear him having just read styles. It's interesting to hear him say he's a computer. <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah, it's like the 60s space age Poirot. He's like one of those computers that took up an entire room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like still was faster than anyone else. Okay, so let's get to chapter seven here, which I will just start to say that there are a couple chapters here, specifically seven and nine for me, that were very difficult and just depressing to read. In chapter seven, they uh, go to meet Mrs. Reynolds, who is Joyce's mother. Uh, and Joyce's mother thinks the perpetrator is some awful man who came through the windows, probably on drugs. <laughs> sure, great. Then Poirot visits with uh, Leopold, who is Joyce's younger brother. He's 11. And Anne, who is Joyce's older sister, who's 16. We're just going to go straight to justice for Joyce here. Mm-hmm. Leopold says to Poirot, she was an awfully stupid sort of girl. I mean, I don't know. like, Yeah. <laughs> You would say that about your sister? Who just passed? And I mean, not just passed. She got murdered. And then Justice for Joyce also, when Poirot talks to Anne, she says, she likes showing off or she used to. Like, (laughs) (laughs) why would you say it like that? That's terrible. Uh, The last Justice for Joyce is also Anne, who says, I don't want to be nasty about Joyce. And she's failing here in that respect. (laughs) And then she says, because she's dead. And it wouldn't be kind, but she really was the most awful liar, you know? (laughs) I think the thing that's funny here is that 
Poirot and Ariadne Oliver leave the house. And he's like, we're making no progress. And so I think that's maybe why this chapter is hard to read, because you get through it and you're like, we learned nothing. And people right. were horrible. And I was trying so hard to, to think in Poirot's mind, we're not making any prog- progress, but that in itself is interesting. But mm-hmm. I don't think that that's... You're like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's actually it's not interesting at all, and it doesn't matter. So, yeah, so that was frustrating. In the next chapter, we actually do get something, because Poirot starts becoming really interested in the past. He's like, in order to understand the murder that Joyce says she saw, we have to know the murders that have happened here recently. So he's having tea and sausages with Spence and his sister, Elspeth. And Elspeth is described as sharp and quick like a cat. So we know that she's trustworthy because Poirot is also like a cat. Poirot starts to make a list of the people who died recently. And Spence starts giving him some names, which, as you had pointed out, Chad is really funny because he says he doesn't know anything. We get an older woman named Mrs. Is it Llewellyn? Yes, Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe, I believe. Yeah, Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe. She bought this estate called Quarry House that was in an old quarry. She really loved gardening. And we learned she hired a landscape gardener, who is Michael, who is guilty, to transform the quarry into a garden. And then Elspeth mentioned she calls her the opera girl, which I thought was kind of a fun (laughs) comedic thing, but it's really an au pair. And we learned that this au pair that Miss Llewellyn Smythe had disappeared. And so the disappearance is suspicious, but Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe died of natural circumstances. She was rich. Her death was natural. But we learn that the au pair was going to inherit Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe's money, which is unusual because... Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe is Rowena Drake's husband's aunt. So Rowena Drake should have inherited that money and did inherit that money because the au pair disappeared. We get into it more a little bit later, but Olga is the name of the au pair. Olga, yeah. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, like confusion. She says that this will is real, that Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe had written where I get mm-hmm. all the money. And then there's a lot of... Yeah. anti-foreigner sentiment yeah. that people know about so they're playing on it that allows then Rowena to get the will instead. Exactly. And they kind of talk about like these foreign girls, they're all the same. They're these loose women that will like marry anyone for their money. So there's a lot of that going on. Get It's interesting because we get some of these murders and some of them end up being important and some of them don't. And I do wonder why there's all this talk of these other murdered girls and then nothing happens. Why? So we get one girl who was killed probably by her boyfriend. So dating bad men. Then we get the next person who's actually important, Leslie Ferrier. We know he was a clerk for the same lawyers as Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe. We learned that he was actually killed by Michael after he had forged a will for him. But they think that because Leslie Ferrier was a womanizer, that he was killed. And it's kind of funny. The way that they talk about Leslie Ferrier is in such sharp contrast to the way they talk about any of the girls in the book, because he's always given a second chance. He's like a criminal and a womanizer. And they're like, but he was a good guy and he deserved a second chance. And we really wanted to give him a chance to like turn his life around. Yeah. And then it's like, 
you have big boobs. You're naturally a slut, you know? And it's just like, wait, what? Yep. <laughs> so yep. he's given a lot of lenience. We learn that he died when he dies, he has a lot of money in his bank account. Then we get Janet White, who was a former teacher. And so it's kind of like the teachers are kind of brought into this, but it's a complete red herring, but it's not a fun one. I think I said, use these chapters to fall asleep. <laughs> that was one of my notes. Yeah. We're getting the actual murder that happened in the past that informs the murder in the present with all these other red herrings that are mostly misogynistic. The end. Chapter nine, <laughs> Poirot goes trick-or-treating at Dr. Ferguson's house. He's kind of the town doctor. It's very much more of the same. He says, mind you, doing in a child isn't anything to be startled about these days. Mm-hmm. Sure. Also, justice for Joyce on this one, Dr. Ferguson, her trusted physician, says mm-hmm. of Joyce posthumously that Joyce ate too much and talked too much. What? Such a dick. <laughs> like, what is happening? Uh, I think that's against the Hippocratic Oath. I'm not sure. Maybe yeah. they don't have that in the UK. I think that he was just supposed to be a possible suspect because he was so unlikable and he was at the party for a second, but we could have done without it. Some of these apple analogies are really fun. I think Poirot is saying this. Ever had a bit of a nice red juicy apple and there down by the core... Something rather nasty rears itself up and wags its head at you. Plenty of human beings are like that, more than there used to be, I'd say, nowadays. And my God, I am so tired of the word nowadays after reading this book. (laughs) Yep. On to chapter 10. Trick-or-treating continues. We go to the school. I'm just going to skip over a lot of misogyny. That's basically a lot of saying things about how women get themselves into trouble. There are some more Justice for Joyce moments. Her teacher calls her mediocre and a compulsive liar. Mm-hmm. That we, we talk about the other women who were killed, but I don't think it matters. Yeah, this was where I felt like the most agonized because it's women talking poorly about other women. Yeah. And they're also in these like mentor roles. So if they had anything bad to say, they should have like stepped in. But they're just kind of being bratty. We end up talking to Miss Whitaker, who actually gives us some important information. She saw Rowena Drake after Snapdragon carrying a large vase of autumnal flowers. So see, she's trying, she's trying to be thematic here. It's not just flowers, it's autumnal flowers. She's on the stairs, she's looking down at the door of the library. We know that in retrospect, she knows that she's being watched, and she does this, it's kind of a theater. Yes. Because she needs to ensure that there's a logical reason why she's wet. So she feigns that she's surprised and she drops this vase and she has the water fall all over her and the vase breaks. So now there's a logical reason why she should be covered in water. And Miss Whitaker is the witness to her doing that. And I think that's basically all we need to know about this chapter. Okay, now we go to when Perot visits Quarry House. Mm-hmm. And this is where the book takes a complete tone change. Yeah. <laughs> and it starts to introduce these new <laughs> these new philosophical and mythological, and I don't even know, just all of these different things. It's dreamy. It just gets really dreamy. It's an ethereal tone out of nowhere. Yeah. And it kind of starts when Perot is walking through these these quarry woods, this this sunken garden almost. Mm-hmm. And he has this flashback to mm-hmm. when he was, I believe, in a boat 
going to Ireland. Is this correct? Yeah, or like traveling through Ireland, and he was like going to a little island or something. Yeah, and he's like going to a little island, and it looked kind of like he was like, why are we going to this island? This doesn't. And then just up over this ridge, he saw this unbelievably sunk garden. And a sunk garden, mm-hmm. it, it from what I gather from the book, is something that used to be like an industrial quarry or something like that that is no longer has an industrial purpose and has been fashioned into something that is stunning to look at. Yeah. It's something that is alive and ever-changing within its context. So he clearly is reminded of that situation when he's at Quarry House. And then there's just this very interesting thing where he meets Michael Garfield, who is the architect and the curator of the garden. And uh, and Poro seems taken by him, by his artistic philosophy and the dedication to his art. But there's also that little part of Poro that is suspicious. Mm-hmm. And he thinks to himself, But everything that grew here had the appearance of growing by its own will, as -hmm. if it hadn't been arranged or forced into submission. But that isn't really so. All has been arranged. All has been planned to this tiny little plant that grows here. Turns out that Garfield, I think, has had relationships with almost every woman in this over generations, right? Because he was initially hired by Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe to create this sunken garden, and he was having a relationship with her. It sounds like it's hinted at, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's hinted at for sure. So Poirot on Garfield collaborating with Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe on the creation of the garden, he says, he managed, I think, to get his patron's plans so, so arranged that she would think that the planning had been hers. But I don't think it was only hers, mostly his. And I think that is also mm-hmm. what happens between Michael and Rowena Drake. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we also have a magical garden plus apples. So is this an Eden thing? It's yeah. probably too simple. Then another thing that Poirot says, he reflects on something that Elspeth uh, Spence's sister said about a murder that took place in the quarry years ago. And it's basically because of Michael's artistry, the death had been forgotten. All had been covered over, which again, foreshadowing clues. On the second read, it it makes it really obvious that certain parts of this book are like really well written and meant to kind of point you in a direction if you want to go there. Yeah. Then we have a Justice for Joyce moment where Michael says, she was, how can I put it, not important. She had rather an ugly voice, shrill. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, though, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. okay. Then we uh, meet, uh, Perot meets Miranda who is Mrs. Butler's 12-year-old daughter. This is something that kind of blew my mind a little bit when I did a little research. Uh, Miranda is uh, is a character in Shakespeare's The Tempest. And at one point during that play, she mentions the term A Brave New World. Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel, A Brave New World, and this is a quote here, it's a phrase taken from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. It is used ironically as the brave new world presented as an utopia, turns out in fact to be a nightmare in which Mm. human beings are trapped in a society where their humanity is deleted. And that almost sounds like what all the adults think about the world in this book. That is so true. Yeah. And also the fact that like the quarry itself is this like industrialized thing that's like masked by this beauty. Yes, that's great too. Yeah. This was the thing that made me think, should I be criticizing this book? And then as it continues, I was like, yes, Chad, you should be. Mm -hmm. But, But still, that's really 
if that's what Agatha Christie's onto, that's amazing. Miranda tells Poirot that Joyce and I used to share all of our secrets. That's a huge clue because Miranda is the person who saw the murder. And so she told Joyce, and Joyce then co-opted the story as her own. Uh, and then Ariadne gives Mrs. Butler's backstory, basically that her husband was an air pilot who died in a car crash, and she never remarried. And then there's a line towards the end, which is very interesting, and I don't know if it makes any sense, so I try not to think about it too much, but it sounds cool, where Perot says, the past is the future of the present. It's interesting that Michael... Judith and Miranda are given these like mythological descriptions, these analogies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he says that Michael is kind of like Orpheus with his lute. He's in these red leaves. So he's kind of like this forest creature. And then um, Miranda, she matches the sunk garden, a dryad or some elf-like being. Yes. So she's also mythological. There's something that's connecting all these people. And then we get Judith, Miranda's mother, and Ariadne's friend. They met each other on a cruise in Greece. So that's also a clue, too. There's this kind of mythological origin story to Judith and Miranda and like how they came into Ariadne Oliver's life. But Judith is like a water spirit, which at first made me think, oh, if she's the water spirit, is she the one drowning the kids? But obviously not. She has the attributes of a water spirit. She could have been a Rhine maiden. Her long blonde hair hung limply at her shoulders. She was delicately made with a rather long face and faintly hollow cheeks, whilst above them were big sea green eyes fringed <laughs> with long lashes. So we just slow down and get very poetic here. Again, we're like in a different story completely. But the things that she's doing with like matching the characters to these myths, it's great. The descriptions of the garden are really beautiful. Yes. She's like, this is where the fairies could have lived and like wood nymphs. So atmospherically, this is a kind of beautiful, lush chapter. I don't know how often this happens in these mysteries, but to be in Poirot's mind when he's reminiscing is in itself ethereal. Poirot is a romantic too. Like I would say he always has an affinity for those people who are smart and maybe don't fit in and have these kind of otherworldly qualities. He really has a soft spot for them. Like he takes to Judith really quickly. He takes to Miranda really quickly. He is at his heart. He's a softie. We leave the garden and we go into a lawyer's office <laughs> Poirot has decided to change his outfit. Mm -hmm. The day before, he's in like practical boots and he's decided to wear <laughs> patent leather shoes. And I don't really know what to make of that because, yeah. yeah, tell me. I, my feeling is that it, okay, if we're looking at it from the standpoint of storytelling, mm -hmm. it definitely gives a lot of opportunities for him to complain and explain mm -hmm. why he's wearing them and for yeah. people to then comment exactly. on the absurdity. It's almost like when we were talking in uh, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and you brought up the point of how, as the stories go on, how outlandishly outdated his mustache is, mm -hmm. and so is so are his shoes. Yeah. It could also just be because he's wants to absolutely lock down who he is in his yeah. mind after being in the garden. Yeah, you're right that he kind of wants to disarm people and he wants people to underestimate him here because yes. really he's onto it now completely. 
he wants people to think he's as out of touch as possible. Yes. So yeah, that's completely why. You're totally right. So we get the funniest moment here in this chapter. This chapter opens. We're inside the head of Mr. Fullerton, who's one of the lawyers. He has this long interior monologue about Poirot. He calls him a dandy, a fop, a foreigner. He's remembering what he's heard about Poirot. He's even starting to like suspect who did this crime. Then we learn that he's been staring at Poirot silently for four minutes. (laughs) It's so weird. (laughs) Yep. That's a long time. Uh Like if we just stopped for four minutes, if I wanted to do a more extreme version of comedy, I would just put like four minutes of dead air here, but I wouldn't continue listening to this podcast. That's a long time. Have you ever stared at anyone for four minutes? I absolutely (laughs) have not. Ever. Like, no. It sounds like a yeah. trust exercise. <laughs> it does. It sounds like a like a horrible improv exercise. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So we get that. Uh, and you're right. He's making all these assumptions about Poirot. And he's like, well, I'll give him a shot because he helps solve this other murder. We know he's Rowena Drake and her husband's lawyer. We also mm-hmm. know that he's Mrs. Llewellyn Smy's lawyer. So that's why we're talking to him. He confirms that she died of natural causes. Um, We learn a little bit more about Leslie Ferrier, who worked for him. So (laughs) Leslie Ferrier is described as quite a one for the girls. He was a young man of promise, but had slightly criminal activities. Again, the amount of scrutiny all the women get in this book. And then they're like, let's give him a chance. He's one of the guys. It's just like, I don't know. It gives me flashbacks to other current events. Then we start learning more about Olga. He also doesn't give her a great description. He calls her stocky and dour. Really what he does in this chapter is confirm that he knows that the addition to the will called a codicil, he knows that it was forged and he confirms that Olga disappeared before she could be prosecuted for forgery. Uh, And I think that's it. And then we get to, I mean, the only way to look at chapter 13 in my brain as being anything even really worth going over is that maybe... Poirot has some type of psychological power over people (laughs) where he can sit in a room with them and they can stare at him. And then for two chapters, they think about the questions he asked and we have to hear about them in their brain. Because the next chapter 13 is the same thing. Jeremy Fullerton, clearly a racist jerk, reminisces. Mm-hmm. After Perot leaves, he remembers the conversation with Olga again. He remembers Olga's relationship with Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe from his perspective. We get more uh, forgery stuff. We get more will stuff. We do learn through his racism how deeply the system was rigged against Olga. Yeah. And the uh, possibly the only good thing about this chapter is that It seems to definitely show an establishment character, a member of the establishment, who is a complete jerk. Yeah. If that's what she's going for here, that's fantastic. But it's still a tough, tough chapter. Again, were this handled a little bit more intentionally, this really could be calling out all of the establishment figures in this town. And so maybe it is much less repeating these things and trying to get us to believe it. And it's much more she's showing us how corrupt all of these systems are. It's just it takes a lot to get there. Yeah, it does. And it's it's more wearisome than illuminating. But in a weird way, like I feel relieved of my desire to rebel now. (laughs) 
Because I think as we're talking about it, I feel less like she's telling me all these things are true that the adults are saying. And I do think, I hope, I don't know if it's clear enough, I hope that she is calling these people out. The only thing that I have with that is I just wish then Perot would have come down a little bit heavier on one side than the true. other. True, like, true, true. That, that's it. But but yeah, I am definitely learning doing this debrief. So yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, okay. We're picking back up with trick-or-treating. Poirot goes to Apple Trees again. Oh yeah. And Rowena Drake's house, the scene of the crime is called Apple Trees. So it's like, we're really getting this apple theme. <laughs> he returns to Rowena Drake and now he's totally onto her. We only know that kind of in retrospect, but he's asking her again, what was going on with the vase? What startled you? She's like, I don't know what you're talking about, basically. She was like, I just slipped. We learn more about Rowena's husband. And I think by the end, we're supposed to assume that either Rowena or Michael killed him, I think, because yeah. he had polio. And his story is so tragic. He was like this athlete. He had polio. So then he had a hard time moving and he was hit by a car. And they're saying, oh, it's because he couldn't get out of the way fast enough. But the car was stolen. Right. Well, there's also the the thing that Poirot says later, which is really potentially not great, but it's that one of the reasons that Rowena became attracted to Michael was because she couldn't have a sexual relationship with her husband, yeah. which gives them a motive, right, to like yeah. kill him potentially beyond just her inheriting everything. So it's it's sad. It's, it's so really dark. She also kind of insists that Joyce's murder was a motiveless crime. It was someone who was crazy who did it. And Poirot pushes back. She really points Poirot towards the teachers. And now we learn that that's because she really wanted Mrs. Whitaker to say that she was shocked. She wanted that like um, confirmation that she got wet yep. because of the vase. Poirot says he still has a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> before he solves the crime. And when I read that, I just became so dismayed. <laughs> we kind of end end the chapter with Poirot chatting. He goes to a cemetery to visit Hugo Drake's grave. He talks to the gardener at the cemetery, and he has this kind of theory. He calls Rowena really pushy and bossy. So there's a lot of like, I hate women who are really capable because you're too capable. He guesses that Rowena isn't going to stay in town much longer, that she's going to go abroad because she's done all she can do here. And he kind of guesses she's going to go to a warm climate like the Grecian islands. So like people are kind of picking up on the fact that she's restless and going to go. And then we hear that Michael is also restless and going to go. So he can start to put together that they're going to like run away together. Chapter 15, we get some Nicholas, we get some Desmond. These boys. <laughs> I love the boys. <laughs> they're so great. At the Nicholas is 18, Desmond is 16. Poirot speaks with them specifically about the preparations for the party, uh, which they were a big part of, which we saw in the first chapter. It is really obvious that they might appear strange to Poirot, but he, he respects them. Mm -hmm. He sees them as like hardworking young men, which I think is important to him. Uh, there is a part, though, that I wanted to get you to take on in this where Nicholas and Desmond kind of go back and forth about whether or not ESP is real. <laughs> yeah. But there's a line that like kind of interrupts their discussion that says, Hercule Poirot, who had no wish to listen to this high level scientific discussion, broke in. And I think that's supposed to be sarcastic. I think so too. Yeah. I can't, and I can't decide 
if it's off-putting or a good example of Perot being a, just a bit superior. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. And yeah. then uh, Desmond does mention that a teacher was strangled a year or two ago. And really the most shocking part of the book, Nicholas says the word lesbian. Ooh. So, and they just, they, you could just hear the, the readers just keeling over the fainting <gasps> couches all yeah. over London. No, I don't want to make a big deal out of this. This is a pleasant chapter. Yeah. We're, we're seeing Perot talk with these, these cool kids as I would call them now. But then we get this really uncomfortable discussion about repressed women who become queer later in life. Yeah. And that, in a weird way, crystallized a lot of the problem I have with this. Even something as cool as that chapter gets tainted. These ladies are oversexed or undersexed. They say both. And you're like, what do you want me to be? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, let's just excise that from this chapter. Let's just get rid of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to fall in love with this book because it's really hard to forgive all of that. Even if it's not coming from Agatha Christie necessarily, it's coming from the characters, but like she's creating them. We're never given like enough of a direction about whether we should be taking this seriously or not. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I'm so glad you brought that up. And actually, maybe this is the time I created a list of all the things women aren't supposed to do. Can I read that? Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. I call it ways to be a bad girl. Young girls shouldn't have a chest on the mature side or be overdeveloped for their age. They shouldn't giggle or be excited about boys. If you're sexy looking and you're murdered, it's your fault. But if you're a sex star spinster or a lesbian, then you're probably a murderer. (laughs) You also shouldn't boast or be smug or superior And if you're not nice, it's also okay if you're killed. If you're bossy, you're unlikable. If you're athletic, you're also more likely to be a murderer. You can't be too helpful with your neighbors because that also comes off as too bossy. And if you're too smart, you're considered awful. (laughs) Yeah. So it's an easy path for women. Yeah. It's like, okay, what are we supposed to do now? Oh, my God. Yeah. How are you supposed to be likable? How are you supposed to pass in this society? Exactly, unless you're Elspeth. Yeah, unless you're Elspeth or unless you're Miranda. Right. Or unless you're like a wood nymph. Because Elspeth is the oracle, right? So it's like, unless you're like a mythological character who's not real, then you're really unlikable. <laughs> right. Who clearly takes care of her brother 24 uh-huh. 7. Uh-huh. Also, by the way, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, Anyways, yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. So then we visit the witch. Mrs. Goodbody. She's really interesting. And you had, at some point when we were talking, you were like, she's so underused. And I totally agree. I wish she had more of a purpose. Really what we get from this exchange is that she hints that Leopold is a blackmailer. She also hints that Olga hasn't gone too far and that she's probably in the well. And we get that through this nursery rhyme, ding dong, pussies in the well. Okay, there are two things I liked in this chapter. She does the whole like kids these days, but then she talks about hearing from her grandmother about how like these pre-Victorian women would get around modesty rules by making their dresses, their really long modest dresses wet so you could like see the shape of their bodies. (laughs) And I kind of loved that. I was like, ooh, how to be scandalous and get away with it. But she says something very creepy and it kind of hints at this 
idea of Lucifer and the devil, which we definitely get with Michael later on. She says there are those that the devil has touched with his hand. They're born that way, sons of Lucifer. They're born so that killing don't mean nothing to them beautiful as angels they can look like which is exactly yeah. michael because he's gorgeous but he's also super evil and then we move on to chapter 17 which is another vexing chapter in my mm. opinion because all of a sudden someone named mrs lehman who used to work for mrs Llewellyn Smythe, and potentially witnessed with um with James Jenkins, the Australian gardener, who, who, like I have written here, a strapping lad, no doubt currently wrestling crocodiles in the outback, because he's back in Australia now. But anyways, Mrs. Lehman and James the gardener were asked by Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe to witness her signing the will that gave the money to Olga. She's talking to Ariadne, and it is an excruciatingly painful scene where mm-hmm. Ariadne is trying to extract information from Mrs. Lehman, and Mrs. Lehman keeps hemming and hawing and yes. repeating and repeating. But why is Agatha Christi- Christie putting us through this? Yeah, why are you putting me through this is a very good question <laughs> Right for many of these parts. <laughs> As the discussion continues, Mrs. Lehman definitely starts to give off some of her racist views concerning foreigners. She seems to embody a racist view from a working class perspective, which is also very real. It's just all over the place. It's just all over the place. That said, why is it in this form? It is a big reveal, but it's like the slowest, most convoluted, (laughs) most uncomfortable and crappy to a lot of people reveal. So then Poirot arrives kind of at the end of that chapter, and he's very sad because his patent leather shoes are hurting him. And at the beginning of the next chapter, we get this really funny exchange where Ariadne's like, you should take off your shoes. And he's like, I could never take off my shoes in front of you. It's so against his personality and his values. And then she's like, you should wear the shoes that hippies wear. And he gets really upset. So it's it's funny and it's cute. They get back into their old little thing. And she reveals that she's transitioned her new food of choice is dates, sticky dates, which sounds horrible. But the reason why it's in there is because there's a pun with the word dates. And Poirot starts realizing, like, I need to start looking at, like, when all these people died and when all these things happen and when the dates line up, that's when I know the murder is important and relevant to this. And that, like, maybe all these kind of separate things, like Leslie's murder and Olga's disappearance, maybe they all connect And so he kind of has that aha moment. And he realizes that Judith and Miranda might be in danger. So he asks Ariadne Oliver if they can stay with her in London. And we get this really funny thing about how she's like, I don't tell my friends that I have an extra room in London because then everybody wants to stay with me. So we get, again, we get this really charming thing. And she talks about like how she comes up with a story, which I really think is like Agatha Christie kind of talking about her process. So very cool. And then Ariadne drops the bombshell where she's like, Mrs. Lehman just told me all these things about the will. And she says, my favorite line in the book, she says, put that in your mustache and smoke it. (laughs) So I do love that. (laughs) That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great line. Chapter 19 is the discussion that they have concerning what uh, Mrs. Lehman said, basically. Mm -hmm. And then we find out that Poirot is obtaining information about the au pair Olga, which I think ties into the dates thing. He's acting on that hunch. 
The last thing that I just thought was interesting about this chapter is this is the last time we're going to talk about the two other women that were killed in the town, the girl that was killed by her boyfriends, and then the teacher that was strangled. And Ariadne just offhand says, I think it was Mrs. Whitaker. Are we supposed to just assume that it probably was and we're just moving on? I think, again, like the teachers and their drama was supposed to be a red herring, but it's kind of half-baked and we never talk about them again. We're on to the sunken garden. This is one of the most uncomfortable scenes, I would say. Poirot goes back to the sunken garden because he's taking a shortcut, I think, to get to Spence's. The haunted garden, I'm always allured by it, and I want to stay there. He says it was a lovely spot in some way, Poirot felt, that it could be a haunted spot. There was a kind of pagan ruthlessness about it. It could be along these winding paths that fairies hunted their victims down or cold goddesses decreed that sacrifices would have to be offered. And this is really where we start to get the theme of a sacrifice. But it's cool. It's like a tumnal. It's witchy. It's spooky. And yeah, I love it. Can I just quickly say that what you just said was so illuminating because you were just like, and this is where we get the first the first kind of foreshadowing of the sacrifice. We're in chapter 20, what? Chapter 20 now? And yeah. all of a sudden the concept of sacrifice is going to be playing. Yeah, we didn't need to go to the doctor's office. We needed to talk about <laughs> sacrifices. Then Poirot stumbles upon the weirdest scene ever. Michael Garfield, who we know is an adult, he's in his 40s, is sketching Miranda, who is a child. And I feel like that's stranger danger. That's just an inappropriate line. And... Yep. Nobody is concerned about this. We do learn later on that Michael is really Miranda's father. So there's that. Miranda doesn't know that in this situation. Yeah, she's just trusting an adult. Poirot does have this like amidst this discomfort, has this very funny thought spiral where he's like, Michael's so beautiful. It's difficult to like anyone who's beautiful. And then he reflects on his own beauty. There was only one thing about his own appearance which really pleased Hercule Poirot, and that was his profusion of mustaches, the way they responded to grooming and treatment and trimming. They were magnificent, as if he knew of nobody else who had a mustache half as good. That's wonderful. (laughs) That's like his garden. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, he's like tending to it. He's the master gardener there. And then we get this really kind of biting exchange back and forth between Poirot and Michael, and he kind of insults his fashion, and I don't want to get into the details, but they're clearly sparring through this very polite dialogue. Michael calls him Senor Mustachios, and we also learn that Miranda is looking for a wishing well, and Michael knows where it is but won't tell her, and she repeats the thing about the ding-dong-dell pussies in the wells. Again, it's very ominous, very creepy. Michael, after Miranda leaves, admits to Poirot that there is a well, but it's sealed up. Poirot suggests that he wants to play at being Adam. We get the Garden of Eden and the apples thing again. He's like, are you thinking about going to Greece? And Michael's like, yes. And then Michael says something interesting. He kind of dismisses him. He says, go on home to your police friends and leave me here in my local paradise. Get thee beyond me, Satan. And Poirot later says, I knew that I was leaving Satan. (laughs) Right. So this is when everything is kind of clicking for him. And chapter 21 picks up right there where Perot is feeling the connections in the case now. But as you have also pointed out, maybe his feet just don't hurt anymore. Yeah. Uh, he's also feeling, though, a sense of imminent danger. And uh, then he receives the letter that has some information about Olga, the au pair in it, that we don't really know what that is right away. But he he does. And then when Perot returns to where he is staying – 
in this complex. Rowena Drake is there. And she launches into a performance for the ages, which, by the way, the first time I read it, I totally missed. I was totally taken by it. You believe it. Totally believed it. But so what she says is she gets, she starts to become very upset. And it turns out that Leopold, and I'm just going to, I'm taking a page from the establishment characters in this Mm -hmm. and I'm kind of reversing it. Rowena Drake launches into a performance for the ages. Leopold, Joyce's poorly postured, soulless 11-year-old brother, (laughs) has been murdered. Rowena then goes on to say that she lied to Perot about not seeing someone at the entrance to the library. Mm -hmm. And now she's saying that, in fact, the reason she dropped the vase filled with the autumnal flowers and water is because she saw Leopold standing there. She at first thought that Leopold might have murdered Joyce, but then put that out of her mind. And now she's realizing that because she didn't mention it to anybody that she saw Leopold, that maybe what happened was Leopold saw the person who murdered Joyce and has now been murdered by that same person. And throughout all of this, Rowena is saying that she blames herself. Yeah. She blames herself for all of it. And it's it's an interesting scene because, like I said, I fell for it. But the second time around, I think it's pretty obvious that Poirot yeah. isn't falling for it. In retrospect, Poirot says that he was watching her pretend to cry with like a dry face. So, yeah, he's totally onto that. And then imagining that scene with her not crying really changes things. Then yep. things really pick up here. I feel like we suddenly wake up again and we're like, oh, we're in a murder mystery. Things have to start happening. And maybe it's just Woodley Common that just really slows things down. But Poirot departs for London. We kind of learn that he's departed for London, and then we kind of backtrack and learn what he's done before he leaves. He visits Miss Emlyn at the school. She's the headmistress. He says that he knows who Joyce's killer is, and he thinks that she does too. And this is kind of fun, but were we supposed to develop this more? He writes down four words on a piece of paper and asks if she agrees, because she doesn't want to say it out loud. And she says she agrees with two of the words, but doesn't have evidence for the others. And we never learn what the words are. And so I'm always like, but wait, what were they? So I don't know if that's awesome and kind of mysterious or frustrating. But then he says, and he's getting this clue about water. You know, we're starting to get it. He says, water, as soon as you heard that, you knew, didn't you? And she's like, yes, I did. (laughs) Poirot blames Leopold for his death. He says (laughs) his death was a result of his own actions since he was greedy and wanted money because we learned that he's been blackmailing the murderers. He hints that getting justice for Leopold's death will keep another child alive And then he asks her if he can trust Nicholas and Desmond, and she says he can. So we realize that he's starting, he's going to set them tracking Miranda to make sure she's safe. And then Elspeth is out running errands, and a woman from the village tells her that there are forestry men in the quarry wood digging around an old split tree, and that there are also police there. So we're starting to put together that the authorities are looking for bodies. Yeah. Ariadne receives a telegram from Perot imploring her to take Mrs. Butler and Miranda to her flat in London immediately. And then this is really spooky. Mrs. Butler is being very kind of hemming and hawing about it. Like she's like, well, but why? What? And so Miranda just in, in all of that confusion says that she needs to talk to a friend before they leave. And that friend is Michael. The key moment there is that Ariadne Oliver tells Miranda where they're going to have lunch, which is a racistly named restaurant. In the audiobook, they change the name. 
why? I was just like, why do we have to add that? Like, why of all the names of a pup, do we have to have it named a race? Right. So she tells her that. And that's when Miranda's like, I've got to go make a phone call. So that's pretty eerie. So we're, we know Miranda now has told Michael where she's going to be. And I think what we learn is that the plan that Michael had for Miranda was going to happen that afternoon in the mm-hmm. garden, potentially. Oh, but, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But that now that the setting has changed, we get to the conclusion. Yeah. 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 Okay. That makes sense. And then we cut to London where Perot is talking with four important law enforcement people. Uh, Perot hands one of them a document that shows proof of a recent purchase of an island. <laughs> Which is just of all, of all the reasons. <laughs> To commit a murder, which Ariadne Oliver literally says later on. She's like, an island? And he's like, I know, it's crazy, right? This chapter feels so much like a police procedural in a fun way. It's so fast. Mm -hmm. He's like, we'll know if we have firm evidence and I'll have an eyewitness soon. I'm taking protective measures and we know it's these mod boys. So then chapter 20, things really pick up. And again, these chapters are very like cinematic. They get fun again. Yep. Judith and Ariadne are at the restaurant and Miranda has quote unquote gone to the bathroom, but they realize she's missing. And at first they're like, maybe she just went to the back garden. (laughs) And that's where they end. Then we cut to Elsbeth's house and they tell her, they're like, we've been trying to get a hold of your brother but we can't find him. We need to tell him that we've had a positive result, which means that Olga was found in the well, which is so sad because I I think as much as we're hashtag justice for Joyce, I think we're also hashtag team Olga. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. We we love Olga. It's so sad. We learned that she died from knife wounds. So it wasn't an accident. She definitely was murdered. Then we cut back to Miranda and this scene, Agatha Christie is hiding the fact that, It's Michael in the car and it gets very dreamy because she's omitting so much and it's just wonderfully creepy. And it's in this tone that Agatha Christie has the ability to take on that I've seen in some of her other books. And it's just executed so masterfully, I feel like. Absolutely. We see that she gets in a car with a man with a beard. And it's kind of funny that all the men in this book are constantly doing like dress up and he's like uh we're all right for time the moment you'll see the double axe as it ought to be seen so he's kind of tempting her with look at these ancient greek rocks i'm gonna kill you on them and then a car almost sideswipes them and we are comforted because it's a young man with sideburns and so we're like the boys the boys are back they're like <laughs> yes. gonna help so i love that that she's constantly hinting to us that she'll be okay and someone is watching her The man says, and this is so creepy, by the time your mother worries about you, you'll have got to where you want to be. Then we switch back and Ariadne calls Poirot and she's like, we've lost Miranda. And he's so pissed. He's like, you had one job. (laughs) And Ariadne asks why Miranda's in danger. And Poirot mysteriously says, the body has been found in the well. Then we switch back to Miranda. Uh, Michael has abducted Miranda, and he's uh, leading her to a specific place to be sacrificed. Miranda goes along with it partially because she feels responsible for her best friend Joyce's death. Because Miranda was the person who told Joyce about seeing the murder, and then Joyce made it her own story. And Miranda kind of feels like, this is my destiny now because of this. Mm -hmm. Just as she is about to be sacrificed in what, as you said, is a very cinematic scene. She is saved 
by the boys. It's a quick scene and it's kind of left open as to what happens after that, which we find out in the yeah. next couple of chapters. But Miranda is alive. That's the most important thing. Yeah. yeah. I just love this so much because we're given these hints by like their very 1960s fashion. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like a rose velvet coat shot overhead and we're like, she's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So yeah, the little Mog saved the day. And I think what he'd done is he, in a way he like groomed Miranda because he'd manipulated her and talked about the values of sacrifice. He told her all these stories about sacrifice in mythology And primed her to be like, I need to sacrifice myself because of my sins, basically. And for beauty. He's saying, like, you die so others should live. Beauty should live. We have two reveals. This is the first one, and then the last chapter is the second reveal. So it's not quite like the classic Poirot denouement, because, like, a lot of it's kind of happened in the background. But Poirot's about to, like, show off what he knows, you know? Mm -hmm. So he gathers everyone. He's with the police. Then Miranda, Judith, Nicholas, and Desmond come in. And he kind of slowly gets in a very dramatic way. He's like, what did you see in the garden? Miranda confesses what she saw. And then he's kind of like, well, what did you see? And she was like, oh, I was in a tree and I saw a man and a woman carrying a body. I saw blood and a knife. She's just kind of out, like we talked about in the first episode. She's just wandering because that's what kids did. So she's just in a tree watching squirrels. She didn't really think of anything. She was younger too. But then she saw them a couple months ago, talking about a Greek island. And when they startled because they thought someone was watching them, she like kind of had the memory come back to her. And she was like, I'm older now. I realized that I clearly saw Olga's body. I'd realized that I'd seen a murder. And then he's like, who did you see? Well, Michael and Rowena. So this is the big reveal. We didn't really know it was Rowena. We thought it was Michael. Then she kind of admits that she thought she was sacrificing herself. And then she oddly admits that she loved Michael. And again, this is inappropriate because she doesn't realize that it's her father. Then we get to chapter the next chapter, which The end. Is, We're on the last chapter. We did it. We did it. Hey, congratulations. Well yeah. done. They're over at Ariadne's flat, and she asked Perot to tell her about everything. Mm-hmm. And Perot explains why he knew Rowena Drake was mixed up in the murder because of the water. She was wet. But then let's get another justice for Joyce here, because Perot <laughs> does say that uh, the compulsive liar, Joyce, he had put together that everyone couldn't have been wrong about her. The Really, the distinction he was making was whether or not she was capable of making up that story herself, or if she would have potentially borrowed it from someone else. And as it turns out, he's right. She borrowed it from Miranda and told that story. Then he goes into this weird... Rowena equals Lady Macbeth and Michael equals Narcissus thing that he repeats several times throughout the final chapter. And I didn't really have time to look up whether or not that's something that has happened a lot in literature. Those two characters intermingling. Yeah. I think if this was a short story and he did this at the end, I would have been good with it. And like, he's getting a little batty and that's fine. Because mm-hmm. he's older, right? But at this point, I'm just like, it seems like he's almost adding another curve yeah, to it. Yeah, another layer like, of meaning. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, we've already got so many references. But Michael and Rowena killed Olga to ensure that Mrs. Llewellyn Smythe's money would go to Rowena. And then the death of Leslie Ferrier is explained, but... It's a little confusing, but yeah. So basically, 
Michael comes up with the fact that they need to pin a forgery on Olga so that they go back and use one of the default wills. Right. They need to take Olga out of the picture. So they make an obvious forgery. They have Leslie do it. Leslie does the forgery. Michael kills him to get him out of the way. They make Olga disappear. And so by default, Rowena's the only one who can get it. And Olga is painted as this greedy foreigner, I guess. Okay, right. right. Yes. And there's almost like Michael knew that would happen. Yeah. You had even said he's using everybody's racism and xenophobia to his advantage. So we, we know why Leopold was murdered because he was extorting them. Did we need that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why Leopold is even in the story, to be yeah. honest with you. I want to get to the island in a second. Mm-hmm. But, but it turns out that Mrs. Butler, uh, Judith, had an affair with Michael oh, right. over a decade ago and that Michael is Miranda's father. We learn this because we think that the only two people in the room are Ariadne and Perot, but actually Judith is there too. Mrs. Butler invented the story of her husband dying in a car crash because the husband does not exist. It's too many myths, I think. We're just getting them thrown at us. And it's like, which one will stick in terms of how you can get meaning out of this? Poirot calls Michael Lucifer. He calls him Narcissus. He recites a poem about it. But then we see the drawing of Miranda. Somehow Poirot has it. And Michael wrote Iphigenia at the top. And that was Agamemnon's daughter in the Iliad. He had to sacrifice her to get the wind to go fight Troy. And so Michael sacrificed Miranda for a garden on a Grecian island. And then we learned that he drank the poison meant for Miranda and he's dead. I know a little bit about Macbeth. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say that not to ever quarrel or quibble Mm -hmm. with Perot. Never. Lady Macbeth's biggest strength was the manipulation of her husband. That falls apart a little bit because Michael's not being manipulated by Rowena. It's the other way around. Mm -hmm. I just want to throw that out there. I'm not British. Well, if you're British, you automatically understand. Automatically, you're born with it. It's yeah. (laughs) It is a little imprecise. There's just a lot, a lot of meaning thrown at us, literally within maybe three paragraphs. I would say, right? (laughs) Yep. So it's a lot to unpack, or maybe don't, because maybe it doesn't matter. You're at the end of the book, and. After we open it and read the last couple of lines, we can close the book for a very long time. We are going to encounter the story again, and we'll get into that in a second. But let's read this. Do you want to be Poirot? And I'll be Mrs. Oliver, which is interesting because I didn't realize she was a Mrs. Go for it. Okay. Good night, Cherie, madame. Lady Macbeth and Narcissus, it has been remarkably interesting. I have to thank you for bringing it to my notice. That's right, said Mrs. Oliver in an exasperated voice. Blame it all on me as usual. (laughs) So like, we're supposed to laugh. And this is right after we literally learn that Michael has died. And we just had the Iphigenia reference dropped. And then suddenly we're supposed to be like, haha. Again, is this all a joke on Ariadne Oliver? What are we supposed to take away from this? <laughs> I'm proud of us that we made it through. I think after Lynx, which is coming up next, the murder on the Lynx, I think it's going to be, I, I say this tentatively, I think it's going to be a little breezier. I think. I have not read the big four. That one annoys me. Yeah. Okay. But I yeah, so mm-hmm. we both love Ackroyd, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have to say something, which is I liked this book, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, without a doubt. 
the thing that I like most about it is reading it with you for yeah, the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Had we not had this conversation, I would want those hours of my life back. Oh, had we not had this conversation, this would have been what I talked about in therapy until New Year. <laughs> so yeah, without a doubt. So I thank you for that and apparently owe you a fair amount of money. <laughs> I am so looking forward to the warm, slightly dim embrace of Arthur Hastings. Yes. I know that we've already had some time with Murder mm-hmm. on the Links, and we're mm-hmm. going to have some new time with it now. And I can feel that my opinion of the book has already changed. I know. I'm like excited to uh, traverse the channel uh, like 70 times with him, which is what happens. And everybody is just on a train going to a different country every other chapter. I can't wait. Also, we should say, so Murder on the Links is the next book that we will Mm -hmm. be doing. That will be coming out in October. But before that, Caitlin, what are we doing? If you did not know, our buddy Kenneth Branagh, who has been making film adaptations of Poirot for a couple years now. Speaking of which, I should call him back. I know. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Mm -hmm. He has done an adaptation of this book. And we are very excited to see it because it, from the trailers, resembles nothing about it. (laughs) It takes place in Venice in a different time period. We're going to watch it and we're going to do a little um, review of it for you guys. And we're going to have fun. Yeah. We're really looking forward to seeing the adaptation, how the screenplay Mm -hmm. is written, and how they get away with saying that it's based on this book. It's not a Halloween party. It's Haunting in Venice. So, right, the movie's yeah. called A Haunting in Venice. Venice? Uh, the haunting? With yeah. the, there's no, okay, the garden? So the way that it'll go is the next episode will likely be A Haunting in Venice discussion, followed in October by Murder on the Links. Lastly, do you have any thoughts about this book? What was it like? Send us an email or send us a voice memo. We want to hear about it. And we are on social media now at Poirot Pals on Instagram. Our Gmail address is poropals at gmail.com. We'll put that in the show notes also. So feel free to send us a message or also send us a message on Instagram. We would love to hear what people thought about this book. Also, if there's anybody who feels like that freaking reviewer does, I would love to hear from you. We want to hear why this is the best mystery, murder mystery of the 20th century. The 20th century. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think on that, we have to end it on that note. Thank you, Caitlin. That was fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Chad. And I guess I'll see you in Venice. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I've never been. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Bye.